Um, we're in a series on uh, Genesis 2 and 3, so we've been in uh, looking at it together this fall. And uh, before we get into our passage for today, which is, I've got a lot to talk about, I want to do two things, just to remind us kind of of the setting of where we're coming from and where we're going. So the first thing I want to remind us is what we're looking at today is ancient literature. So listen to ancient Near Eastern expert John Walton describe this for us. He says, from the start, it is important to recognize that the garden, the trees, the serpents are symbols. All these characters, all these things we'll meet are symbols. By that, I do not mean to suggest that they are not real. We must simply recognize that they stand for something beyond themselves. That symbolized reality is transcendent and far more important than the physical realities, however one might assess the latter. So some of you come in and you, you think about Genesis 1 to 3 and you're like, oh, like I have very specific opinions about this. I think there was a snake. I think the snake was in a real garden, met with a real woman, and this happened 6,527 years ago, and I have all the receipts for this. If that's you, fantastic. Very grateful that you're here. Some of the rest of us will also have a very big problem with this idea. And we're like, I don't know if I can believe that any of that happened, happened. And that's okay. I'm super glad that you're here. What we're talking about today and what we're talking about in this series is the symbolized reality However you think of the physical reality, however you assess that, as he says, that's fine. Let's talk about the transcendent reality this morning. The second thing I want to do to set the stage is to remind us of where we are. We looked at this last week. So Genesis 2 starts with these chaos waters. You can imagine all the outside is like these chaos waters. This is the problem in the ancient Near East, the problem in Genesis 2, that this is not a place of flourishing. So the God that we meet, he, he uh, creates a dry land, this space, uh, that's also known as dust. And from this dust, he makes the humans. We are dust and divine breath. And we're called to partner with God in many different ways, but one is to abad and shamar, or the Hebrew words, which are the words that are used of priests in the Bible. We are to be, as humans, priests in the space that God has created. Just as God has cared for and stewarded this place, we are also to do the same. And then finally, we're called to partner with God and to partner with each other. And then it continues on to say that inside of this dry land, there was this place called Eden. We don't know where it came from. And it says that God created a garden. So we're getting closer to the center. And in that garden, there were two trees. And in the ancient Near East, we saw that there are two big symbols for us about trees. One is that they're sacred spaces, which means that they're spaces where God and humans can meet. And the second thing that we, we looked at a couple weeks ago is that trees are spaces that signal that they're spaces of testing. And testing is not exactly like what we think in, in North America, where you sit down and you write a test. It's not so much about what you know, although it includes that, as we'll see today, but it's about what, showing what's underneath, who you are, what kind of decisions that you make. So last week we saw the first character at the tree, and it's the snake. And the snake has a choice or a test. It says in the Hebrew that the snake is the most arum, which is an ambiguous phrase in Hebrew. It could mean that the snake is very wise and clever, or it could mean that the snake is very malicious and disingenuous. And the question is, which way is this snake going to go? And we saw last week, and we'll see again this week, that the snake chooses the second path. Rather than becoming an agent of God, an agent of good and benevolence in the world, what the snake does is it becomes an agent of chaos. And now we've reached the pinnacle of the story that we're going to be looking at today, where we have the humans at the tree. And on one side of the tree, there is this voice of chaos speaking, the snake. And on the other side of the tree is the voice of God. Which will they listen to? That's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to look at that in three different sections, starting with verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now the snake was more shrewd than any beast of the field which Yahweh Elohim had made. 
And it said to the woman, Indeed, has Elohim said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. So this passage begins with the narrator using a very specific word for what we would say call God. He uses the word Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. And this, our translation that we've been using uh, here uses this, this uh, phrase consistently. It's always calling God Yahweh Elohim. The word Elohim is just the generic term for God or gods. You've got to remember in the ancient Near East there are many gods. God or gods or even spiritual beings. So, you know, it's not Kleenex, it's just tissue. Get it? It's just, this is no frills, what we're talking about. No frills gods here. Okay? Just Elohim. But Yahweh is a very important word in the Bible. It's the name that's been used all, all throughout Genesis 1 and 2. It's introducing us to this specific God. And this specific God has a lot of different interesting qualities about him. First of all, he's not part of the pantheon of gods. He's not like the rest of the gods, as we've seen. He's very powerful. This God doesn't have to fight anyone else. He just creates with the word of his mouth. This God is also, Yahweh is also the covenant name of God, as we'll see as we move along. That means this God wants to partner with people. He wants to partner with us. He wants to work in and through us on the earth to accomplish his purposes, to create flourishing. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, he's a good God. He's a generous God. He is a God that we can trust. And this consistently has been the God that has been introduced to us for the last two chapters and the past seven weeks that we've looked at this passage. But the snake here just sneakily changes it. He moves it from Yahweh Elohim, but when he addresses the woman, he says, no, just Elohim. Now, this, this might seem like just a tiny little detail for pastors who have nothing better to do, or like, we have nothing else to say. Let's just point out this tiny little detail. But commentators that I've been reading in the past few weeks say, actually, this is really important. By putting these two together, the author is trying to say to us that the, the snake here is trying to switch in uh, the, the human's mind in the story that this is not Yahweh Elohim. This is not the God that we've been introduced to in the last past, uh, ch- chapters. But maybe, maybe he's just a regular God, which means maybe he's a God we can't really trust. We don't really know what he'll say. Maybe he's not as powerful as you might think he is or as he portrays himself. He's much more like the rest of the gods of the ancient Near East. And we'll see that this is the same model that the snake will pursue. So the snake asks a question. It said to the woman, Indeed, has Elohim said, You shall not eat from the tree of the garden? So at this stage, uh, there are two basic questions that are here. The first one is, Who is God, as we've just seen? Is he Yahweh Elohim, or is he just a, you know, no-frills God? And then the second is, What did he say? What did he actually say? Now, the answers to these should be very simple if you've been following along with us the past seven weeks. He is not just Elohim. He is Yahweh Elohim. And what did he say? We could just turn the page back a little bit. He says this in Genesis 2. From every tree of the garden you will surely eat. If you remember back to that time we talked about it, in Hebrew, this is eat, eat. It's like what a grandma says to you. Eat, 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 eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, you will not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So that is the correct answer to the question. What does the woman answer? The woman said to the snake, From the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, Elohim has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Again, we're we're called to notice these very small differences. She doesn't correct the snake. She takes on the name that that the snake uses. She doesn't call him Yahweh Elohim. He's just Elohim. She doesn't name the tree. She doesn't call it the tree that God does, but she just says it's in the middle of the garden. And then finally she says, we can't eat it, but we also can't touch it. 
Now, for, for those of us reading, we're like, whatever. It's basically the same thing. But we have to remind ourselves of what Genesis 1 to 11, really, what it's trying to do to us. It's trying to introduce us to how we're supposed to read the whole rest of the biblical story. And so if you do, if you continue on reading in the Bible, what you'll find is that this kind of a conversation happens quite often. You'll get two characters... And they'll have a conversation, and it almost always boils down to two characters in the biblical narrative. And one of them will say something like this, you must go down to the dung gate. The Lord says you must go down to the dung gate. And then the other person will say, the Lord says we will go down to the dung gate. This is a real place in the Bible, okay? And listen to how Robert, uh, a Hebrew expert, Robert Alter, says what he, what he says about this in his groundbreaking book, The Art of Biblical Narrative. He says these little differences in, in the conversation, he calls them varied repetition. And they're an important signal for us for how the biblical authors are saying something. Listen to what he says. In order to grasp the full freight of the character's intention... And the subtlety of narrative structure in a story, one must be alert to even the pattern of shifting a single word in what may seem like a strictly formulaic pattern. So here's the pattern. God or one of his intermediaries or a purely human authority speaks, and then man may repeat and fulfill the words of revelation. Man may repeat and delete, or man may repeat and transform. But the discrepancy between virtually repeating and exactly repeating provide the finely calibrated measure of the character's problematic subjective viewpoint. What he's saying is that in these conversations that we read on, when, when one character says something and the next character doesn't exactly repeat it, it shows underneath. It's much like a tree. It shows what is going on in the character and it foreshadows what's going to happen. So let's zoom now back to our context. What does this misquotation say about Eve? Well, at this point, we don't really know. We have no clue. We're just invited to notice that, that she has not quoted God correctly. Maybe she's afraid of who, Elo, who God is. Maybe she's not sure. She's like, I don't really know if he is Yahweh Elohim. He might just be a regular Elohim. Maybe she's afraid of the tree. That would make a lot of sense. This is classic religious behavior, actually. If the religion says, don't do this, what people will do is they'll say, well, let's not do this then, because then we'll make sure we never, ever get here. Maybe she thinks God is much more of a tyrant. Maybe he's much more like a grampy grandfather than this generous mother. I think some of us can probably relate to that. And interestingly, some commentators that I was reading this week, they pointed out that Eve actually wasn't there when the commandment was given. So in the flow of the story, of the narrative, uh, God gives that command that we just read to Adam. And then the next panel of the story is Eve is created. And now we're at the tree. So someone had to tell Eve what God said. And maybe Adam was like, look, you just need to know one thing. Don't touch that tree. I don't know. We don't know. At this point, we're just supposed to notice it, and we're invited to keep reading the story. What's going to happen? Now, before we do keep reading, I want to um, make a couple notes for us today on this idea. First of all, I understand that this level of attentiveness to the Bible is a lot. Like asking you, you know, some of you might say this, look, I don't even like to read, period. Never mind the Bible. And now you're asking me to notice the difference between, like, you will go to the dung gate and we will go to the dung gate? Like, I don't want anyone going to the dung gate, if I'm honest with you. I don't really care about any of this stuff. So here's a couple things. Two encouragements and then one a bit of a challenge. First of all, I, I just want to say this. I don't expect everybody to be like me. And by that, I don't mean that I'm a super Christian. What I mean is that I'm a professional Christian. 
And so I get that it's my job to sit up there and like look at this text for hours. And I love it. I'm so grateful. It's a huge honor to me. But sometimes pastors come up here and then they're like, how come you don't study your Bible more like me? And you're like, because I look at spreadsheets all day, man. Like, I don't have that kind of time. And so I get that that's my job and it's not yours. I'm also a person who really does like to read. And it's okay if you don't. God loves you too. He does. He really does. Okay? I just am saying I don't expect you to be like me. Secondly, you're here. So that's what we do. If, unless you didn't know what we do here, and then by which I'm very sorry. Um, but this is what we do. We come here and we look at these, these passages and we try to understand what they mean for us today. So you're doing it. Good job. You're here. And some of you are even sitting at the front. Praise God. So good. Okay? But here's the third thing, and here's where I want to offer a bit of a challenge to us. I've realized in my own life, and actually the life of everybody that I know, that we do get nerdy about things that we love. You know, I, I love the, the Edmonton Oilers. I love hockey, actually. And I've watched so much hockey in my life that about once a game for the Oilers, I will be able to call that they're going to get scored on about three to five seconds before it happens, which right now is not very hard. It happens a lot, okay? But I'll just see someone, I'm like, ah, he's missing his check, and boom, pucks in the net. About once a game. It's weird. Most of you probably may not be able to do that if you've never watched hockey before. I, I love bikes, so if you brought your bike in here, I'd be like, oh, I see what's going on with the shifter. Maybe we should switch from a 9-speed to an 11-speed. Maybe from Shimano to Campy's. I think that might be a good choice. Or SRAM. Are you interested in SRAM? Now, to some of you guys, I've just spoke Greek. You have no clue what I'm saying. But all those words mean something to me because I love bikes. I am learning how to love my wife. And that is something I'm getting nerdy about. So I've learned in our marriage that when she does this, <laughs> it can mean one of two things. I, one, it means that I need to Nancy Drew this situation and figure out what I have done wrong. Am I chewing too loud, breathing too loud? Probably something too loud. Or the other option is she's moved her head. Also viable. But I am nerdy about it because I love my wife. I'm learning. And the point is here to say this. All of us actually have these things in our life. Some of you, if, if, a, if an engine revved outside, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a V6 Hemi. I know what it is. And then someone else might say, well, is it a Ram Hemi or is that a Chrysler Hemi? And the rest of us are like, what are you even talking? I didn't even hear the engine. But you know because you love. That's something that you love. Some of you, it's the cry of a child. Apropos, thank you. <laughs> Checks in the mail. Uh, Samara. But some of us would know that well, that's just the cry of a child. But to some of us, we know that's not my child. Some of you will listen later on the podcast. It's Gareth's mom, my mom, and then some of you. Um, and you'll, be, you'll hear a child, which doesn't happen infrequently in here, you'll hear a child cry and you'll be like, oh, that's my child. For the rest of us, we just hear something because we don't have the same relationship. For some of us here, we know what this means. And the rest of us are like, oh, why did they spell hold wrong? See, some of you have no clue. Some of you have memorized all the differences between the not Taylor, Taylor Swift songs... <laughs> And the Taylor versions of Taylor Swift's songs. And shame, shame on you if that's you. No, I'm just joking. I'm really joking. I'm really joking. But here's the point. We all have things that we get super nerdy about. And the question is, why? why do you get so nerdy about these things? Why am I not at all tempted by Taylor Swift songs, but I am super nerdy about the Oilers? It's because I love. It's because I love. And I've allowed myself to get wrapped up into the story of what I love enough that I've basically become an expert for free. 
in that area of my life. And so here's what I'm saying to you. All of us have those things in our lives. And I'm not calling you to become a Super Saiyan-level Bible reader. I don't need you to be able to teach a class at Regent in the Bible. And, and so, you know, if that's not you and you don't like reading, you don't like reading the, the Bible, no worries. I'm not here to shame you. I just want to push us a little bit. Which is this. That in this moment of history, especially as we read this text that we're reading right now, there are so many questions. I, feel, I think a lot of us feel slightly unmoored in the world. You know, these big questions, who am I? What can I actually trust in? Where is this world going? What's happening? These are big questions that we're asking as individuals and as a culture. We're, we're slightly adrift. And this story that we're reading invites us into some sort of an answer of that. And so maybe it's just worth leaning in a little bit more. Leaning a little bit more and learning how to, to read because we love. Because we love this God. Now, we really do need to move on, but quickly and lastly, I'm just going to say this. There are some people in this room who are going through something called, uh, you might call it deconstruction, or if you're like, you know, you're, you're deconstructing, but you would never call it deconstruction. Whatever, look. The point is just to say, you might, you might come to the text, or you come to the point in your life where there's a snake at a tree, and he asks you, hey, what, what did God actually say? And you might say to him, look, at another point in my life, I would win the sword drill on this one. I would totally be able to tell you what God said, and I'd be willing to tell you where to go and who your daddy is or something like that. I don't really know. But the point is to say right now, you're just like, I don't know. I don't know the answer to any of those questions. I'm figuring it out. And so if that's you here, um, first of all, I just want to say, well, you're welcome here. I'm so grateful that you're here. I'm honored that you're here. And you are not alone. No matter what you're going through, you're not alone. But I invite you, and this passage invites us, to de- and reconstruct wherever you're at in that journey with God's people. And I think this is a great group of people to go through that with, but also with the text together. And I'll just tell you from my own life that actually digging in has, has reintroduced me to God uh, in a way that I wouldn't have been able to keep faith had I not. Okay, so the woman basically fails both tests. She agrees that it is Elohim and not Yahweh Elohim. And then we see a discrepancy in her answer from what God actually said. So now the snake goes on the offensive. Verse 4. The snake said to the woman, you surely will not die. You're not going to die, die in the Hebrew. Now we're just going to step around this one, come back to it in a few weeks. And we're going to go to verse 5. For Elohim knows that in the day that you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like Elohim, knowers of good and bad. In this verse are two of the very key things in this passage for us and for understanding what temptation looks like back then and what it looks like for us today. So here's the first. The snake says to the woman, look, if you eat from this tree, your eyes are going to be opened and you could become like God. And the author is super clever. The author is actually questioning us. Have you been reading? Have you been paying attention to what's been going on in the story? Because if you have, there's a deep irony to this temptation. Let me just go back and remind us a few things of what we've learned in the past few weeks. Genesis 1.27, what does it say about humans? We are made in the image of God. This means that we are the reflectors, we are the idols, we are the icons, we are the statues of this God in the world. Whatever we see this God doing, we are called to do it. It also means we're royalty, we're kings and queens, every one of us, a position only reserved for very few in that time. Genesis 2.7 talks about humans, it says we are dirt creatures, we're very humble, but at the same time we have the breath of God in us, we are exalted, we are raised. 
Genesis 2.15, God says, you are my priests. I am doing, I'm giving you the task of doing everything that I've been doing here on this world. You represent me here. And so the text has actually been unbelievably clear to us about who we are as humans. If we're one thing in this text, we are like God. We are like God. We are as close to God as one possibly could be. So there is a deep, deep irony to the challenge of the snake here. He's saying to you, let me offer something to you you already have. They are like God, and he says, you could become like God. It shouldn't work, in other words. But we'll see why it does in a minute. Here's the second part to this temptation. He says, the snake says, for Elohim knows that in this day uh, that you eat from it, you will become knowers of good and bad. Sorry, go to the next slide, Joel. The snake is offering here what is commonly known as wisdom and is known in the rest of the Bible as wisdom. Now, here's a fun set of questions that you probably didn't think you are going to have to answer this morning. Is wisdom a good thing in the Bible? Yes. You're like, he's tricky. I don't know. Does God want people to become wise? In the Bible. Yeah. Do these humans need wisdom? 100%. You know, Eve, the, the, or the woman, the woman who's, who's talking to the snake here, she is basically like ancient Beyonce, okay? She's going to run the world. She needs a lot of wisdom. If you're going to rule, if you're going to be priest, if you're going to be a king, if you are going to represent God in this world, yeah, I think you would need a lot of wisdom. And so they're lacking it. And the tempter here is doing the exact opposite. He's saying, you need this, I'm going to offer it to you. If the first part of it was, you already have this, but I'm going to try to give it to you, the second part is, oh, you really need this thing. And so I'm going to offer it to you, the knowledge of good and bad, the knowledge of wisdom. So that probably brings up a question for many of us. If wisdom is good, if God wants us to grow in wisdom, if these people need wisdom, then why is going to the tree such a big deal? Why is it such a problem? And here's what I think is happening. God does want us to gain wisdom. It is a good thing. It is something that we need. But he doesn't want us to gain it through the tree. He wants us to gain it through trust. You don't gain wisdom in the Bible through the snake, but through trusting in God, growing in relationship with him. And so God says, don't go out and try to get wisdom. Don't try to get the knowledge of good and evil anywhere else. Don't try to shortcut the situation. Wisdom comes from trusting in me. Wisdom is a gift from God. Wisdom, as James says, is a gift from above and not from below. So we saw two earlier challenges from the snake, from the chaos monster, and now we've seen the second two. Do you believe in what God has said? And do you trust God for what you need? Who is God? What has God said? Do you believe what God has said? And do you trust him for what you need? And these are the two questions, the last two, that lie at the heart of this passage, but they also lie at the heart of, I think, every one of our lives. Do we believe what God has said? Do you believe what God has said about you? That he loves you? Do you believe what he said about himself? That he's good? That he's great? Do you believe what he said about other people? That they are people that are worthy of being loved? Do you believe what he said about our world? And do you trust him? Do you trust him to provide what you need? All of us have areas in our life where we're in need, where we're in lack. Do you trust God to provide for those things? Or are you open to the voice of the snake? 
Now, I want to try to make this practical and pers- or practical for us because, again, to be human, the Bible says, is to face the test. We will all face tests. And very sadly, there is this dark force in the world. There is this voice of the tempter. But we're not going to leave here, and you're not going to go home, and there's not going to be like a viper in your you know, kitchen being like, look, hey, see, don't trust the Lord God, see? Um, that's how the vipers talk in my mind. Um, <laughs> How might we apply this today? Okay, so I want to introduce you to this guy. His name is Stephen. I think you say his last name, Rice. He's a um, psychologist and a psychiatrist. One point in his life, he was hospitalized. So he went to the hospital, and, uh, but he's still a psychologist. So he started asking all the nurses. He's like, why do you do what you do? Like, why do you help people? You're giving me such great care. And interestingly, they gave him a lot of different answers, but he found patterns in the answers that they gave him. So like a psychologist, he came out of the hospital, and he did a big study. It was one of the biggest studies at the time. And he released, uh, is a study of human motivation and desire. And he released this book um, called Who Am I? Which I feel culturally obligated to tell you is also a fantastic Jackie Chan movie from the 90s. And uh, by fantastic, I mean terrible. It's great. Um, but here's the book. So he, he says in the book, he boils down all of our human desires to 16. 16 different desires. Here they are. Acceptance, curiosity. I'll just I'll tell you a little bit about the few that I think are not that clear. Curiosity means the the desire to gain knowledge or wisdom, as we're talking about today. Eating, family. I, I just think of him being like talking to a nurse, being like, "Why are you here?" She's like, "I'm just hungry, dog. Um, a guy, a girl's got to eat." Um, okay, sorry. Uh, back to it. Family, honor, idealism, independence, order, physical activity. Power, romance, saving, or the need to accumulate something. Social contact, social status, tranquility, and vengeance. Now, Reese's theory, I mean, it's not the most well-known. Some of you may have heard of other theories. For example, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. This is more like psychology 100 stuff. And I wouldn't say his theory is perfect, okay? It's, he's, he's like, he's a real psychologist. He taught at OSU. Um, but here's where this is important for us. Later on in his life, he wrote another book. It's called 16 Strivings for God. And here's the thesis of his book. On one hand, our thesis is that human nature includes not one, but 16 strivings. On the other hand, the Judeo-Christian image of God is intended as the greatest, most perfect, most admirable qualities we can imagine. It follows, then, that the attributes of God should be the greatest imaginable expression of the 16 basic desires. What he's saying here is that our greatest desires as humans are met in Yahweh Elohim, all 16 of these. That he's the holder and the source of each one of them. And that he gives them to us. He also endows us with them. So do you desire power in your life? Is that a motivating thing for you? then you can come and worship Yahweh Elohim, Elohim, who is all-powerful, who creates just with the voice of his word. Do you desire wisdom? Very important for our, our context today. Then Yahweh Elohim is the source of wisdom, and he will give it to you if you trust him. That is the background of what Genesis 1 and 2 are trying to say to us. And what the tempter does is he comes along and he says exactly the opposite. Oh, you want power? You want independence? You want status? I mean, Elohim is not going to give that to you. So just come, eat the fruit. Well, you lack wisdom? Well, God's not the source of wisdom. He's just, remember, he's no frills God. He's not going to help you out. And even if he gives that to you, like, he's probably holding out on you. 
So why don't you come? Just this, this tree right here will give you exactly what you want and what you need. This is the voice of exactly what the serpent does, or one way of looking at it. Now, before we, we continue on in the story, we need to, I want to try to apply this for us today. Whoever you are, uh, wherever you wandered in here, and whatever you think of, of Stephen Rice, each of us has motivations in our lives, core things that mobilize us into the world. And when you look back at this list, you're probably like, ah, some of them don't apply to me. Like for me, social status, never a motivation for me. I uh, have what my sister calls JOMO, the joy of missing out. So if you're like, so for me, I'm not on social media. It does not, I have not thought about it once. It does not bother me. Like, what are people doing? I'm like, there's people? Oh, interesting. Okay. But there are other things on this list that mobilize me into the world every day. Every tree I've ever stood in front of, every decision I've ever made is deeply motivated by these. So these are probably five for me. Curiosity, a desire to know. Physical activity, social status, how I'm viewed amongst my people, my peers. Independence and saving. Those are five for me. So I'm just going to give you a minute here. I'm just at, take a look. Which ones are yours? Just we'll just silently take a look. One minute. Which are the ones that motivate and mobilize you into the world? All right, we'll continue. I was going to ask if anyone is eating, but I would assume that it's like half the males here. Our emotional range is like, I'm hungry or I'm angry, or I'm fine. So yeah, I'm motivated by eating. Um, So that's the first step, is to be somewhat aware uh, of who we are and what mobilizes us into the world. The second thing to notice then, and, and this is what we learn from the Bible, it's part of what we do here today, is to say how God, as in Reese's words, is the greatest imaginable expression of each of these things. That he wants to satisfy these desires in you, and he wants to give these things to you in his own time and in his own way. You know, I was reading through Reese's book, and, and I thought, like, okay, so physical activity for me is, like, one. How Because you're going to say, like, yeah, God's jacked, or whatever. Like, that's what the Greeks said. They had this god named Atlas, right? He's, like, super ripped. Um, header is, is physical activity is our desire, and God is almighty. And here's what he says, the faithful are comforted by God's strength. Those who desire that are comforted by a God who's powerful. And I just sat and thought about it for a few minutes. We worship this God who is unbelievably powerful, and it brought me to a place of worship. To think that I'm, I'm, I mean, I know I'm not the epitome of physical strength or activity, but there is a God who is, and I can come and worship him. And that's the design of each of these things. That we find a home for these desires in Yahweh Elohim, and we trust that he will provide, and we'll trust that what he provides is enough. That we trust that what he provides is enough. I think, again, this is at the heart of the passage. God has said to these people, do you want power? Do you want honor? Do you want status? You are my images in this world. You are kings and queens. I couldn't put you any higher. The Bible says you are just a little bit lower than God's. And you know what the people say? They say, yeah. But have you seen the kings and queens in Mesopotamia? Like these dudes, they're balling out there. Like they just got everything. And we laugh at them. We're like, those folks didn't even have air conditioning. Like, my apartment sucks. I got air conditioning. You know, I'm the real king or queen here. But I I think the real, this points to where the heart of, of where many of our failures are at the trees of our lives. 
As God comes and he says so many things about who we are, about the gifts he gives to us. He says, I gave my son so that you can be my child. I gave everything to bring you into my family. I often think of the passage in Luke where it talks about the rich young, or sorry, the, the, uh, the prodigal son, and the father says to the son, all I have is yours. All I have is yours. God comes to each one of us and he says that to you. All I have is yours. And you know what we think back? Yeah. But Steve just got a promotion. So like, maybe help me out as your son. That, that, that would be really good. Oh, it's good that I'm your kid, but like Carla just had a really great kitchen renovation. I don't know if you saw it. If you could just help me with that. That would be what I want. And that's where we go. We don't trust that it's enough. And again, I'm not going to be honest, but I will be personal here. A struggle of this in in my life. We're going to go through a discernment process in about six months on on living in the city and housing in the city. So I'll give you a sneak peek to that, and I'll give you a sneak peek to what goes on in here. Our family does not own a home, and I've already showed you what my basic desires are. To own a home would fulfill at least three of my core desires. Social status, independence, and saving. To say I've accomplished something. To say I am someone. Now, some of you own a home and you're like, honestly, it's not that big of a deal. And some of you don't own a home and you're like, why are you so obsessed with this? Who cares? We have different desire profiles. That's why we care. That's why some of us stand at trees and we're like, no big deal. Not at all a temptation. And others of us are just like shaking because we have different things that speak to us. We have different areas that the tempter will tempt us. And when it comes to home, we'll, we'll look at this a lot more in the future, in the next six months. But God says at least two things. God says, I come here to make my home with you. This Yahweh Elohim that we've been looking at in the last two, you know, seven weeks, says all this all-powerful God wants to make his home with me. He wants to make his home right here with us as his people. And he also says, you have a future home with me that can never spoil that can never fade away, that the drain tile never screws up on. You have a home with me. And I believe those things in my head. But the voice of the snake in my head says something like this. Yeah, but if God really cared, you'd probably at least have like a condo, right? You'd have something. You'd have your foot in the market, probably. Or like a home in heaven. Like, what does that even mean? A home in heaven. You know what the good life is? The good life is that all of your kids have their own room. The good life is that you have a living room that's big enough that you could actually host like someone smaller, bigger than a rabbit. The good life is not spending half of your money on rent. You know, if God was really good, it'd probably help you out. And it's a struggle for me in this area of my life to believe that what God has given me, that he wants to make his home with me, and that he makes his home with us, and that he's given me this home that will never fade away, that that is his best, and that that is enough. As Reese says, that that is the greatest imaginable expression of my desires. All of us have those things in our lives. You know, one author says, our desires are like a compass, and the goal of the Christian life is to get that compass to point to its true north, to God himself, to take those desires and to find their home in God. And what the tempter does, what the chaos monster does, is he comes and just sets a little magnet by our compass. And he says, ah, maybe it's not enough. Maybe you should just point it over here at something else. 
Maybe God is not the greatest imaginal expression, and maybe God will not provide. He challenges on those two fronts. Now, the last piece of the puzzle for this morning, what are we supposed to do with this tempter? When the tempter, as he will, he'll come tempt us. And once again, we need to go backwards to go forwards. So we're supposed to remember back in Genesis 1 that humans are given a job description, and it includes two of the cringiest words for us uh, in the Bible, that we are called to rule and subdue. Some other translations say have dominion, or as my daughter says, she's like, we're called to dominate uh, as people. That's what we're called to do. And these are cringy words for us because we know how they've been used. They've been used to subjugate people and people groups terribly often in the name of, of God, or not often, sometimes in the name of God. They've also been used to destroy our creation, the creation that God has made. Again, sometimes in the name of God. I just say to you, uh, unambiguously, that is not what this means. The correct application of these words is right here. The snake is an animal. The people are called to rule over the snake, to subdue. We see God in, in Yahweh Elohim in this, in this story, subduing the chaos waters. And we, as his image bearers, are called to subdue these words of chaos in the same way with words of light and truth and hope. God has just completed with utter domination over the, or sorry, God has completed and has utter domination over the chaos creatures of the world. That they're not, as we saw in Genesis 1, they're not chaos monsters. The Leviathan is not a chaos monster, it's just a big fish. And we are invited as humans to see it the same way. Oh, maybe this Leviathan is much bigger and stronger than us, but God has delegated his power to us. We have dominion over the chaos monster. That is what we are called to do. What do the humans do in this passage? Verse 6. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating, and that it was desirable to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit, and she ate. Again, in the reading of the Bible, this starts to create a pattern for us. We'll see that people see, that they desire, that they take, and that they eat. Uh, If you know the story of the Bible with David, he's sitting on his roof as the king of Israel, and he sees Bathsheba. These are the same words that are used. He sees, he desires, he takes, and he consumes. It's the same pattern. And we see that happening here. The woman fails the test just like David failed the test. She moves her compass off of true north. She fails in the human job description. She does not trust. She does not believe. And she has failed the test. And it says, she gave to her husband with her and he ate. Just like the snake became a chaos monster and tempted the woman, the woman now gives to the man. And this is the nature of sin as we, we will see as we look at the consequences, that it always spools beyond our control, that it is never just something that happens to me, it always reaches far beyond. Verse 7, the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed leaves of figs together and made themselves loincloths. We'll look again at this passage in a few weeks. But sin doesn't only affect me, it doesn't only affect other people around me, it affects our whole world. It's a very sad turn in the story. After seven weeks of looking at this passage with potential and hope and light and this good God, we're now in this place of of darkness, this place of sadness. And I'll just be honest with you, um, it's going to get darker. The next four weeks, we are going to look at the consequences of what's happened that are described as we lead up to Christmas, 
that we will have a God who comes in the person of Jesus and says, I shine a light into darkness and darkness has not overcome. This is how we will prepare ourselves. So every week, including this one, there will be a dual response for us as we look at the darkness of this passage. On one hand, there's lament. And so for many of us, we look at the darkness in the world, places where other people have failed the test and the sin has spiderwebbed onto us, and we lament. We're called to lament the generational brokenness, the trauma, the war. And you're invited to bring all of the emotions associated with that to come to this table as we respond and meet a God here who rages and weeps with you, a God who is not foreign to anger, a God who is not foreign to understanding that sin clouds over on us. And some of us might be lamenting the decisions that we've made at Trees. When we talk about this decision, the failure of the woman, we think of our own places where we failed, and maybe you feel the shame or the guilt or the powerlessness associated with that. And you see the consequences of your own sin in your life and spooling out into the lives of the people that you know. Conversations you can't take back. Relationships that have been broken. Things that you felt like you're holding onto the rope and they've just got away from you. And then others of us will think of places where we've failed God. And this relationship that's described in Genesis 1 and 2, which is so warm, and so close, has now moved to a relationship of distance with God. And so we want to invite you to respond, to bring those emotions, to bring that to the table, to prayer as we respond, to confess, to confess those places where we have all failed the test, and to receive the forgiveness from the faithful one who passed the test on our behalf, Jesus. And he offers us grace, and when we come to this table, we take on his story and the invitation to become new, to die and rise, to stop partnering with the chaos monster, and to learn how to be human. And then I know there are also those of us who stand at trees right now, and the compass of your life is just rattling like crazy. And maybe the only voice you can hear is the voice of the serpent. It's one of the very interesting things about this passage. Where is God? Not here at all. And maybe that's how you feel in your life. All I hear is the voice of the serpent. And we invite you to respond with us to sing. And for those of us who are not standing at those trees right now, to sing for each other. Sometimes I just stand quietly there, both because I'm not a very good singer, but also because I just need people to sing for me, to say these words over me. We invite you to sing together, to come and pray with other people in the back. And to remind ourselves that as we come to the table, that there is a God here who promises to meet us and to help us. Last week, I closed with a passage from Hebrews that said, God knows what it's like and is with us in our temptation because he's been tempted himself. Let me close today with these other words from Hebrews, from Hebrews 12. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, that he left his home and came and made his home with us, tabernacled with us, that we might have a home with him, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, meditate on him, hope in him, who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray to close. God, it's a a sad turn of events uh, in this passage, and uh, as readers of your word, we want to hear it, even though it's maybe not what we're used to hearing um, on a Sunday morning or what we came expecting. 
but we want to bring our full selves to you just as you bring your full self to us. So as we respond uh, in all the different ways that you invite us to, I pray for each person that your Holy Spirit would guide them into the response that you um, are calling them into, and you would invite each of us to the table to come and to receive uh, your broken body and your blood and to live in this pattern of dying and rising. For those who are stuck in patterns of sin, for those who are failing at the tree and those who are just being tempted right now, God, we, we ask that you would minister. Would you minister through us and would you minister by your Holy Spirit that we may be people who become wise, who become more like you and who find our greatest desires met in the God of the universe. We pray these things together in the name of Christ. Amen.